Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. On October 15, 1994, the National Gallery of Art hosted a public symposium in honor of its first exhibition devoted to a living photographer, Robert Frank, Moving Out. The exhibition was drawn largely from the Robert Frank collection given by the artist to the gallery in 1990. Including 157 photographs, a book, and two videos, the show featured Frank's early work in Switzerland, as well as images from his travels in Peru, France, Spain, England, and the United States. Robert Delpierre, Allen Ginsberg, Jonas Mekas, and Ed Grazda, Frank's close friends who influenced his life and career, participated in this symposium. Robert Frank, Moving Out, was on view at the National Gallery of Art from October 2nd through December 3rd, 1994. The fourth speaker was Ed Grazda, photographer, followed by panel discussion with co-curators of the exhibition Sarah Greeno, Curator of Photographs, National Gallery of Art, and Philip Brookman, Curator of Photography and Media Arts, Corcoran Gallery of Art. This introduction's not so hard because I asked uh, Ed Grazda how I should introduce him. And when I asked him, he said, just say I'm a photographer. And then we realized the burden of that, uh, that word here today because Ed is the only photographer today talking about uh, Robert Frank's uh, relationship uh, to him as a friend. When I myself first met Robert Frank in 1977, um, I realized that he had a whole world of people around him that helped him to do what he did. Uh, he had a lot of friends that understood his work, and he helped them, and, and people helped him. And Ed was one of these people. Uh, Ed is a photographer and also a master printer, and has for many years printed Robert Frank's photographs. He's been one of a handful of people who have really helped Robert to interpret his work uh, through the prints that are made. Um, he's made a number of the uh, complete sets of the, uh, the Americans, the photographs that compose the book, The Americans. And I think probably um, through working so closely with Robert Frank's negatives, really understands the photographs, um, both technically and emotionally. Um, Ed is a person also that when I go to New York, I always see on the street for some reason. We run into each other. And I realized Ed is also, uh, like Robert, always out there on the street, just looking around to see what's there. And uh, I think that um, that says something about their relationship. Also, when I think of Ed, I think of one photograph in The Americans. It's a photograph of a group of young boys in a candy store in, I guess it's in Queens, in... Uh, taken in 1955, and the reason I think of this photograph is because Ed once said that he saw himself in the photograph, that he was one of those kids in the candy store. Not literally, but uh, I think a lot of us find ourselves in the pictures, and um, this is a case where uh, you know, we can sort of picture uh, the world that Ed came from through looking at that uh, photograph by Robert Frank. Um, now for his resume. Uh, he was a student at the Rhode Island School of Design, uh, received a BFA in photography in 1969, is now teaching photography at Harvard University, uh, where he's been teaching since 1971. And he's also taught at the School of um, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, at Massachusetts College of Art, the School of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, and uh, at SUNY Purchase, the State University of New York in Purchase. 
Um, he also photographs around the world and is probably now best known for photographs he's made in Asia, uh, both Afghanistan. There's a, a book of uh, Ed's photographs from Afghanistan uh, published several years ago. Uh, he's recently been photographing in Vietnam and uh, has now uh, is in the process of putting together a new book of photographs that really kind of juxtapose uh, his view of Asia uh, both through the years and from all different countries in Asia called Asia Calling. So now I want to welcome Ed Grosna. First, I would like to thank um, Sarah and Philip for inviting me here and also for organizing this uh, wonderful exhibition that we have upstairs. I'm also very uh, humbled to be here with Alan uh, because uh, of a little book, Pull My Daisy, which I first came across uh, Robert's work, and Jonas, whose films and magazine film culture I knew before I... uh, came across Robert's Americans, and also Maestro Del Pier, who published a book that affected so many of us here. So I'm sort of humbled to be here with these people that I've looked up to for, for all these years. As the only photographer on the panel, I would like to speak a little bit on how I got here. I think it was fate and circumstances. Because I was born in New York City in March 1947, the same month that Robert arrived in New York City. So I've always felt that we sort of grew up together in America, me growing up, Robert photographing it. And so it was no surprise to me that years later we ended up being neighbors on Bleecker Street. Um, Let's see. I'm going to show a couple of slides here. I don't know how to... Oh, this thing is open. How about turning the lights down? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Growing up in the 50s and early 60s, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Suburban America was comfortable yet scary. TV told us everything was nice and neat, mom was in the kitchen baking brownies, and dad was always happy and at home. Uh, On the left are pictures of uh, me and my parents. (laughs) Uh, But I was interested in Chuck Berry and... um, Folk music, blues, jazz, and the beatniks. I had read On the Road when I was in grammar school and wanted to hitchhike everywhere. I was arrested once hitchhiking home from uh, high school. (laughs) (laughs) I knew something was happening, but I didn't know what it was. However, I was lucky. I escaped to art school in 1964. And it was at the Rhode Island School of Design that I first saw the Americans. One of our teachers showed me a copy of it, and for me it was like a miracle. It was then that I decided to become a photographer. My parents were hoping that I would go into industrial design. We're going to leave that one on. Um, This is the picture that... Philip just spoke about, and uh, I really did see myself in this picture because I spent a lot of times and a lot of dimes listening to Chuck Berry on the jukebox. As photography students in the mid-60s, as the world was about to be turned upside down, 
Dylan went electric in 65, the civil rights marches, and then Vietnam. The Americans spoke to us in such a clear way, showing us what we were feeling about America but couldn't express. We looked at this book in constant wonderment. Emmett Gowan was holding his uh, beginning photography class around the snack bar at the RISD uh, snack bar with a pile of photo books. And he described uh, this picture of the, um, whoop. Emmett described this picture of the couple on the motorcycle as uh, Jesus and Mary on the flight to Egypt. The message being, I think, that this was art and meaningful, and we knew it. Robert quickly became our hero. A friend from school recently said to me, man, we worship the guy. But we also loved the book, and we you know, died to get our hands on a copy, but we couldn't. I spent my first trip to Paris going into every bookstore, not speaking a word of French, looking for Les Americains, <laughs> with no luck, of course. Who was this guy? We really didn't know who he was, but we wanted to figure out who he was. Um, it was a revelation to us when we saw this picture, and we realized we could see Robert in the, in the picture, and then we also sort of decided we could see that he was using a Leica camera, which confirmed to us you know, so many things that we were learning about street photography and, and everything at school. It was really like something we could relate to, but we never could find Robert. Our teachers would constantly try to call him and have him come up as a visiting artist and uh, with no luck. Finally, Grossman republished the book in 1969. We were so relieved, I rushed out and got a copy of it. Meeting him was not a prime concern then because we at least had the book that we could hold on to. And then he published these letters uh, in Creative Camera in 1969, which also brought him a little closer to us, but he was sort of... Who was he? We didn't really know what he looked like or where he was or whatever. After graduating, uh, I moved to, to New York City in 1970 and took a job at Magnum Photos. There were lots of pictures to look at and photographers to meet. And I knew Robert was in the city, but where? I wasn't really pursuing him, but I knew he was around. Uh, some friends of ours had met him in Chicago. Robert was sort of coming out of hiding and getting back to photography schools and things, and uh, these friends of ours had met Robert with a wheelchair at the airport when he came to visit uh, the Art Institute, and they told us what a great guy he was and stuff. Then uh, a friend called from RISD and said that they had gotten in touch with Robert, and he was going to come up and talk to the photography graduate students. So a friend of mine, Doug Sandage, and I called up Robert just out of the blue and said, we'd like to give you a ride up to Providence. And Robert you know, accepted, and we picked him up in Doug's red pickup truck. And the radio was broken, so we had to talk to him, and he talked to us. My first impression of this photographic hero was that he was wearing worn black kid sneakers. No silk scarves or suits like the Magna photographers that I had met. He was just a guy on the street, the kind of guy you would pick up hitchhiking, the kind of guy who is in that picture of the two hitchhikers that he picked up during the Americans. He was not self-important. He was more interested in what Doug and I were doing and what photographers we liked and the music we listened to. He was definitely put off by the fact that I was working for Magnum Photos at the time. 
And Doug, Doug recently recalled how Robert drove his truck at 80 miles an hour on the way home. <laughs> From the beginning, I, I never asked Robert about the Americans. We just started our relationship when we met, and I didn't start hounding him on how you did this or what you did that. I never pursued those things. I've learned about it since then, but I never forced these issues on him. And I think he appreciated that. Uh, a few weeks after the trip to Providence, he invited us over to his loft on the Bowery, and we had the ritual signing of the books. And my work at Magnum again came up, but after seeing my work, he was, uh, it was not really an issue with him anymore. And we met June and Danny Seymour. I was very impressed with his loft living, which was the kind of lifestyle that, that we were starting to live in New York City, and, and his unpretentious lifestyle, and the fact that he was more interested in what we were doing and never was giving speeches about, I'm working on this, I'm doing that. You know, you're sort of pulling teeth to find out what Robert w was doing. So over the next few years, I, I got to know him better because I was living on the Bowery and run into him on the street every once in a while. Uh, let's see. When this is me, <laughs> when I had hair, and <laughs> and uh, Pablo Frank and Bill Burke uh, at 184 Bowery, when photo friends would come to New York, we would go and visit Robert and hang out, and uh, it was it was a good time. Once he even called me at Magnum Photos to borrow my copy of Pull My Daisy, the book, because he didn't want to have to look at the film to write the text for the uh, lines of my hand. And at that time, he asked Doug to make a few prints for the book. And this is an interesting little um, footnote here. that Doug, He asked Doug to copy the Jack Kerouac's postcard for the book. And Doug, at this time, showed Robert this new film, Polaroid Positive Negative, which he used to copy the film, the postcard, because it had no grain. And it was after that that he started to use the, the pack film and... Uh, work with the Polaroid materials. Before that, we were, Robert and some friends of ours were using Polaroid, the snapshot camera, the 3000 black and white, but without the negative. But Doug working in the photo studio, where photographers use the positive negative all the time, uh, showed this to Robert, and it, I think it was an important thing. I took a loft on Bleecker Street a few years later, and Robert, June, Robert and June moved to Mabu. But they always came back to New York City, and they needed some place to stay when they came, so they took a small room a few doors away from me on Bleecker Street, and they eventually bought the building and fixed it up. Over the years, I've helped him and June dig out the cellar, struggle with a furnace that floods the house, um, a midnight call from June that rats were invading to come over and help her block the holes. <laughs> um, nothing really glorious or you know, extraordinary, just sort of everyday kind of events. We watch our street change. The winos are gone now. Condos and yuppies have replaced them. But we're glad that the yuppies are still on the block because it keeps us much closer to reality. But it was really, I think, for him a matter of convenience, the fact that he didn't have to give the negatives to a lab, and also the fact that we can communicate in a few words. He doesn't give me long, long instructions about how to, a negative should be printed. A few words are usually enough. Occasionally, I've had to redo some prints, but usually if he just says, don't make it too heavy or make it a little harder or something like that is all I need, and it works for him. 
I also, the fact that I print very fast, I think it's good. He doesn't have to worry. He gives me something and he gets it the next day. And despite all rumors that he was sort of sloppy, although when we look at the wonderful prints in the show, I think there's no question that Robert didn't care about the work because the work is so wonderful. Each print is really special, but he really, he knows what he wants, and when you put out two or three versions of a print, instantly he can go to the best one and know there's no, there's no question about it. I like Robert because he's a man of few words. When he comes back from a trip, he says, it's good there. I know, it's, I know what he means, and I want to go there. <laughs> I don't need any explanation. <laughs> or if he moans and says, oh, those people, I know I don't want to meet them. <laughs> and I'm, I'm always impressed with his feelings for friends, especially old friends. Um, if I can find this picture now. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. After all these years, we'd figure we could figure slide projectors out. Uh, when Charlie Mingus died, um, there's a radio station in New York that always plays a memorial broadcast when a jazz musician dies for 24 or 48 hours, depending. And we were listening to Charlie Mingus, and Robert brought over the negative of uh, this one here, which is in the exhibition of Subway New York City, I think. And... Uh, went over to my light table and scratched Mingus into it and uh, had me make some prints, one of which he uh, gave to Susan Mingus, uh, Charlie Mingus's wife. Um, so he always has this kind of feeling for, for old friends and memories and things like that, which is, is very moving for me. Again, he never really talks about what he's doing, although it's not a secret, but he's never, you never, he wants to know what's going on, what you've seen, what you've done. He's more likely to comment on the tree he planted in front of his building, what's going on in the street, the new Dylan album that's just come out, then about a big project he's working on. When he went to Beirut a few years ago, he was there, no one even knew. It was just gone. You know, there's no, like, I'm working on this great thing and it's going to change the course of photographic history. That's what I love about him. It's just very, you know, he goes on with what he has to do that none of his photographs are hanging up in his house. For a few years, he was collecting uh, Last Supper scenes, statues, 3D pictures, rugs, whatever. He would just find them in junk shops and things. So you're more likely to see a 3D picture of the Last Supper than any picture of the Americans when you visit him. I've learned from him that, that you take a political stand on things just by the way you live and not by speeches. Your life is your stand. Who's likely to visit him? It's usually not stars of the photo world or heavy-duty photo collectors, but some young people that he or June are interested in. At a Thanksgiving dinner, it'll be old friends, maybe someone like Lou Fowler or Alan, but always Joe, a guy who lives in the neighborhood and works as a janitor on the street. He'll always be invited over to Robert's house for dinner. From Robert, I've learned not to be a Sammy, not to follow the expected path, but to take the one that is right for yourself. Life isn't easy, but it's important. But it isn't that life isn't easy, but it isn't that hard if you do your work and don't get to feel too self-important. 
Like the letter he once sent, sent to me, Dear Ed, I'm famous, now what? <laughs> he knew the answer was that you just keep busy with what's important to yourself. And yes, sometimes you do have to eat that farina, even if you've been eating it for 100 years. Um, Philip and I thought that we would um, uh, start this by um, both um, of he and I maybe asking a question or two um, of the of the speakers, um, and then um, just open it up um, to all of you for whatever um, whatever questions um, you might have. Um, to begin with, I have a question for um, for all of you, um, which is something that. I don't have an answer to, but it's, um, uh, I mean, I have no thoughts in mind, really, um, that might explain it. But I've noticed in, in working with Robert um, that he has um, just a strong dislike. I think even um, you, we could call it an abhorrence of, of repeating himself. Um, and he is continually, um, as, as we titled the exhibition, moving on and, and, and moving out. Um, he will accomplish one, one project, um, such as the Americans, and then um, make a complete break from that and do something um, very, very different. And I wondered if any of you had any thoughts for, for why he might um, have such a dislike um, for repetition of you know, something that might have, have caused this um, in his childhood or any other experiences. I don't know if the word should be used that he dislike. I don't think he dislikes it, but it's his nature. It's like Scorpion's nature to you know to sting. To I think it comes from his sincerity from him, from what he is that he cannot repeat himself. He has to needs has a need to be very much. I mean, as he tries to understand and be just very much himself, if he would do uh, uh, another series of similar to what he already did, it would be like uh, acting, going through the same road. But he wants to constantly be on a very fresh, completely uh, uh, like path that, like going for the first time, for the first time. That's my feeling. Yeah, I, I think that he's afraid of security, really. You know, to repeat yourself and do the same thing, to, to redo the Americans, it's not a place that he really wanted to, to be. I mean, he always likes to be sort of on that edge of, you know, not being comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a big part of it. I still don't like this word, you know, afraid, or I, 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 I wonder if what... Alan thinks, I wonder, if he's really afraid. He once told me that he didn't want to go through life looking through the, seeing it through the lens of a Leica. (laughs) He did that for many, many years, and that probably was finally a kind of limitation. That's not a question of fear. No, just wanted to expand, you know, to move on and move out Mm -hmm. to what film at that point. But just not get stuck looking through this monocular, like, as a uh, West Coast painter who does photography, uh, David Hockney yeah, yeah. said it's you know like looking through one uh, the, uh, one eye, polyphemus eye, one eye. Mm-hmm. You know that's why he wanted to make collages with different uh, 
part of the process yeah, but, uh, that he One used. other thing that he said was, uh, um, oh, I forgot anyway. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, part of Robert's process really is that he creates through struggle. Um, if something is easy to do, it doesn't work for him. It's, it simply it doesn't turn out good. It has to be done somehow um, through struggling with it. And that's one of the things about Robert's filmmaking. He really stopped photography in a way because he wanted to struggle with something new, and it was hard for him, and that it really was, uh, it was that process that, that keeps him always, uh, you know, kind of on edge and, and looking for something new to do. Even though he said that, you know, sometimes he thinks he only has one or two really good ideas, and he keeps following those ideas, the process that he uses to to work with those ideas is always different. One other thing he said to me was, uh, I tried to get him to take some still photos from 1984 to this year uh, for uh, a record album that I did with old John Hammond, Sr. <clears throat> and uh, so he did. You know, he made a kind of interesting collage, a little bit like the stills, a collage of stills for the inside cover, but he did a very... Uh, Big job, actually, of it four 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 sides to the double album, and then when I had my collected poems out, nineteen eighty four, he uh, I asked him if he'd do a, a back cover jacket photo, which is a, just a hack job in a way, but we didn't work together so long, so he said, "Well, yeah, I guess I could do it. It's a continuation of the work we started long ago." And then this year, I had another book, and I think in February he took another. Uh, went down to his house we went across the street to the Bowery and he got me up against a chain link fence with a lot of leaves behind it there was a bike and he asked me to put my little Leica on the bike and took another photo which is the back cover of a new book so uh, he's uh, amenable to continuing if it's you know some some intimate work that involves his uh, sympathies I, I had a question that I wanted to ask and really direct to um, Jonas. Um, one of the things that you once said that's always intrigued me is that the difference in your experience as an immigrant and Robert's experience, and that uh, you were f- really forced to leave Europe and leave your home, and, and he wasn't. Um, and then you both uh, later on um, worked together and, and were in that kind of creative community in New York in the 50s, and I'm wondering... Uh, if you have a sense of sort of how those differences are, are applied in the work that you both did here in, in the U.S. I think it has to do maybe with uh, memories, how uh, much you depend on your memories in your work and uh, how much you try to just get involved, completely lost in a new reality. I think that those who are like... Uh, myself, uh, <laughs> who are forced to leave uh, uh, their countries, uh, uh, it's much more difficult to break away from the memory. You constantly want, you know, to go back and, you, and memories, memories, me- memories. Uh, whatever you do is very much connected with with those memories of your, you know, the country, childhood. While uh, uh, Robert, those who come, or any Italian 
with a worker that emigrates looking for, you know, to get more money to send home. It's a, uh, a different thing. The country is there. The, you can always, always go to the memories and walk through the same places where you grew up. Well, I could not. Uh, so then, Robert, of course, it's easier for him to totally submerge into a new, new reality. We'd be very open to it and be just with it. Uh, uh, I would reason think more or less along those lines. Uh, so there, I think, uh, 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 I mean, much of my filmmaking is very much connected until just very recently, <laughs> practically, with, with memories, memories, memories. You cannot escape them. They are very sweet. Those, like Ulysses had memories singing into his ears. You have to close them. Uh, that is the difference, maybe. Do any of you have any questions? <laughs> yes? <laughs> there must be many. Does the panel, anybody on the panel, feel as if Robert Frank in The Americans in that era was working in the documentary tradition, or whether it's somehow, for him, more subjective? Um, if you look at the exhibit, there does seem to be a kind of a split between these intention to move out and, and document. But maybe I, I have that wrong. Maybe maybe he all along was approaching America much more subjectively. I'm wondering what you think. It's a, what, see, what's yeah, the, the difference, difference between to appro the, the, an approach, difference of approach to the documentary objective photographs of the Americans Mm -hmm. and the later work, which is more personal, ah. family, ah. subjective, ah. or emotional. Yeah, but uh, for me, that's the, 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 same, the same general attitude uh, he has, uh, and he had constantly. And uh, there is not a big difference for me between the, the, the photos he, he made uh, for, for the Americans and with the, 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 the more recent pictures, the, the, all these extraordinary collages he made in Mabu, for instance. For me, there is a, a perfect line of sensibility, and, and he's so so talented. He has a, <clears throat> such a, a sense of uh, moving the, the images, you know, to, to, of putting them together on, with with an extreme facility. You know, when we, we you look at Robert working on that, you know, it's it's so surprising. You know, the the the, the ability he has without any arrogance, and you know, it's it it's, it comes from the inside. It's it's, it's why I said that she is a real artist, and it's it's much more than just photography for me. And I mean, also, I think if you look at the black and white and things, that's sort of very subjective also. I mean, the Americans, we tend to think it's a documentary book because it has a kind of a subject, you know, America that you can sort of grip. But when you put it in the context of the other earlier work, it really just continues on. It wasn't 
that different, uh, I don't think. You know, it's a, it, the problem is that's, that's what he's known for. Everyone puts it in this one little frame, the Americans, without seeing the earlier work as much as we should. Um, and when you see it, then you just realize that that was just sort of a one more step along the way. Yeah. I, I think it's very good that, that there is a lot of early preceding, b- before the Americans in, in this exhibition, that, that helps a lot, I think, to see that it's just one continuing journey. The, the, this, this stage was just, and it's continuing. But the later uh, photographic, much wilder, I mean, collages and... Uh, I mean, formally, but the content somehow... Fragments and stuck together. That's much different. That is a little bit different. That's more like approaching like an, an artist with an easel, with even with some painting on them. Mm-hmm. Well, he hung around with painters like Miles Forrest. he's Forster. married to... He's married a, to a painter, a painter right, June. So. But it's more uh, almost like a painterly, artistical approach. You know, we put it up, you put it up, and it's good. you got some paint on it, and, and, and put things together like a collage. It's almost you know somewhere between photography and um, the kind of art they sell in galleries. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's a more inner looking. And oh yeah. I mean, the terms you're using are really somehow outside of photography because within photography I do see the line and the line is simply that he's he's getting more inward but it is not a question of painterly versus photography For, I think that's that's a false um, dichotomy or whatever I don't think there's anything wrong with you know adding a little bit of paint and thinking of it as, as a you know something in something that you show or that you make, uh, you know, like the homemade piece of, of artwork. I think the point is that he, he went more inside. Yes, sure. Mm-hmm. But every good artist you know, does that. I think there's when also... When they get older. It's, there's something um, in the, the materials that, that, you know, helps that along from, from the Americans... In, in which he really said he set out to document a civilization when he wrote his application for the Guggenheim Fellowship. He was really still making single photographs that he then combined in a sequence into a book. And then filmmaking in the process of actually working with people and then putting together pieces, of, physically putting together pieces of film, I think helped him to then re, re-understand the way the materials could work and that it was okay to then make a collage and paste pictures together and in a sequence and you know I mean it really changed the way his pictures look and in some ways the sensibility though is the same it's still subjective one other fascinating thing too that that, um, I think we discovered in working on the show is that when you look through the contact sheets the early ones in particular the ones of the Americans and we included a couple of those in the exhibition you see that Frank is is um, reacting very immediately, um, um, spontaneously, and intuitively as he's going around the country photographing. You see that almost, um, almost always, or very frequently, he gets the image he's after on that first shot, and it's that intuitive gesture. Later on in his work, the images are more constructed. I mean, they are taped uh, together, often ripped and torn. Um, but frequently, that intuitive response comes back in again in the in the paint that he just uh, smears across across the surface. So it's it's just a continuation of that of that same idea. As far as the the the, the uh, using some 
techniques or uh, brushes. See, for for decades, I thought I was carrying a secret until I heard that it came out today that Robert doesn't make his own prints. I thought I shouldn't tell anybody. He told me that already in 57 that he hates, and he just gives to the lab or to somebody that he knows, and they make his prints. Now, so, but he took a picture, but then he supervises and has control, but it somebody else makes. Then now he takes video, and then he makes stills, he, uh, he uh, produces uh, stills from videos and films and reworks, and then they are exhibited together with his photographs. There are many, still he took those video pictures. Original, they were moving images. Here they are stills. So there are all those uh, complications, but still those are his images and the essence still are the photo, the, all those details in those collages are photographed images, images taken with a camera by Robert, what he saw and how he saw it. Um, so of course it's not that, that, that simple, you know, you have a straight, then you have some from video, then you have collages and, and etc. But they all are Robert. Uh, Yes. They're not that easy to print. <laughs> um, you know, archivally speaking, and I'm sure the National Gallery is having a wonderful time with these old negatives, you know, some of them are pretty hard to print, uh, thin negatives, scratched, whatever. But as far as what he wants in a picture, I think that's probably been, you know, he knows that and it's been pretty consistent all the time. As far as, you know, he doesn't like it too dark. He wants it to sort of have light coming out of it, which you can see in a lot of the prints and things like that. Um, I mean, there's a few that are simple to print, but frankly, you know, the Americans, there's a lot of hard negatives there to print. And you see, Kaplan said a lot of them were a mess. Oh, you know, they're, they're... Hard they're, to go, you know, like, <coughs> too dark, and, you know, like, uh, all wrong. Yeah. You had to work on them to get them. Right, and you either have a print, a reference print to work from, or a reproduction in the book, so you have an idea. I mean, you can interpret a million different ways, but so you know... I mean, I printed the highway picture from the Americans, and I printed one print really, really contrasty. I mean, I liked it. It reminded me of Franz Klein, and I always think of Robert also as an abstract expressionist. In some ways, there's some sort of relationship there. Um, but it was just too contrasty. You know, it was like number five filter or something, and it was just, and he didn't like it. I mean, I thought it was an interesting interpretation, but right away it was just... Artie. Not good. You know, that was not what he was looking for. He knows what he wants in the way it's supposed to be. Yeah? yeah I'm not sure how to put this in a question, but I'm intrigued by the selection process of an artist working. And as we hear about the Americans, and I'm worried about this as I hear your lecture, that is clearly a pivotal, art, pivotal artwork in the history of modern photography. But if I heard right the other day, it was, it's about 100 photographs that were selected out of about 20,000 choices uh, over a two-year period. And it just strikes me the whole book could have been radically different if he just made a different selection from that Yeah. 
I think that's a big part of, I mean, you know, everyone here has a camera. Everybody takes pictures. You could go to somebody's family album and, and come up with, a, you know, a lot of interesting pictures. But what really sort of divides, you know, the wheat from the chaff is that the photographer selects the ones that he's interested in to make a certain statement, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. You're right. you know, the, the editing is really an essence of it. You can change it a lot. Well, I think you work the subject matter, but then when you look at the contact sheets, you're working it again and, and pulling out what you... Because if I looked at your contact sheets, I'm going to pick, pick out something else. And it really, the important photographers know which pictures are the ones that really resonate. What's driving me crazy right now at this point in my life that I, I have trouble wanting to work on assignments anymore because my work has become so personal. I want to pick what I want to pick and that's it. I, th- I think in some ways Robert had a very hard time working in the commercial world because of that, because he really wanted to have some sense of what, what his work, how his work would be presented and how, how it would be interpreted. And he wanted to do the editing and be involved in the editing. Um, and if you work for Life magazine, they do it for you. And you know, I think that, that's part of why he didn't end up in that world. You know, early on he wanted to in some ways, but he couldn't make that work. So, uh, back in the mid '60s, I remember being with Robert on 86th Street, and uh, I had a very proud of show in this brand new Honeywell spot meter that had just come out. He said to me, uh, uh, "Well, what do you do if it breaks?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, what do you mean?" He says, "Well, your light meter should be up here," and I think that probably accounts for the very quality. <laughs> well, you, you can respond to something right away instead of, you know, taking the meter out, changing lenses, the whole thing. I mean, he just responds to it. You know, even then with the films, they're very forgiving. And if someone is printing, you know, if you're printing yourself, you really can do a lot with it. Um, yeah, I noticed that a lot. He'd uh, he take my camera. And without, you know, considering, I mean, just considering the light, by, with a lot of experience, he just adjusted to what he thought was appropriate without consulting any other machinery and shoot. And they always came out good. Well, the big turnaround for me was he, he, he led me to sense light. Mm-hmm. That was the uh, important quality in a lot of his photographs. He was more impressive with the light of the day and then to see him photograph in it. Than to figure out the exact setting or whatever. I mean, he's really respond. Yeah, I mean, it's this miraculous event. He's in this cafe, lights coming in. You take the picture. You don't stand around metering and doing all these things. I mean, it, the it's set. part of the intuitive process that Alan was describing. And also, I know that he he's very interested in both intuition and chance and how chance might you know play into it. If if something works right, it's great. If it doesn't work, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know, and and he's kind of looking for through the intuitive, you know, approach to the light or whatever. He's looking for some effect that you might not be able to do with a machine, and it comes out. He did also say something very interesting when he was walking through the show the other day, um, actually with a critic who was trying to get him to talk about his relationship with abstract expressionist painters, and uh, very early on in the late 40s, early, early 50s, and was asked, looking at the photograph of the 
street line in New York City and asking Robert if he had thought of Franz Klein at that moment or, or, or other people. And, and Robert said, no, you have to understand what we were all after at that point was just to use the available light and to explore available light um, and not to use any flash equipment. And that was extremely important to him and um, something that I think a lot of the photographers that he was working with in New York at that time were very involved with. He also said one other thing that relates tangentially, quote, photography is an art for lazy people, unquote. <laughs> In other words, don't take too much trouble, don't get yourself all tangled up in a bunch of wires. Yeah. You know, make it easy, do what you got with available light or with the available situation, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, if it works, it works. Yeah. But well, what's the big deal, you know? Well, that's the other thing about not working on assignments, is that, you know, if it doesn't come out, it's your business. You know, it's not somebody is waiting for this picture that has to go to press right away. I mean, you just do it, and if that picture doesn't come out, you do another one. But the funny thing is that a few times, that actually, I've asked him to do something very specific, like a cover, fo- cover photograph three separate times. He always came up with a knockout. He always came up with something really ingenious, interesting, that required his uh, arrangement or selection or an in, intrusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one, he asked me to put all my little City Lights books together and hold them for the collected poems and hold them out in front of me. For uh, the uh, last book, he wanted me to pose, he selected the spot across the street from his house, but he also had a bicycle there and he wanted me to put my camera up there strapped to the bicycle, so that was there. I mean, it was, he actually put something together. There's a piece in the exhibition, um, it's in the last room, um, it's a big diptych um, called Untitled and Mute Blind, um, which consists of the stack of photographs that he drilled holes through in his video home improvement, plus faded um, um, uh, thermal transfer prints, video prints underneath it, um, and then video prints and color prints on the uh, other panel. Um, And Robert has described that um, piece as electronics eating up photography um, because the only thing in that piece that is not somehow based on electronic imagery is that stack of, of, of dirty and defiled, destroyed prints, and all the rest um, are either video prints or color photographs that have been shot from a video monitor. So, I mean, it's certainly an idea that he's, that he's interested in. Yeah. You just go ahead and do it. That's all. You just go ahead and do it. Yes, you know, it's possible. Is there no choice if you're a, if you're a photographer, you point your camera at something you're interested in and make your own prints or have somebody make your prints, and that's the same thing. If you're a writer, whatever passes through your head is what passes through your head. You don't have a choice. It, you, you could get caught up in trying to figure out what the market wants, 
and most people I imagine do, but if you have some sense of uh, what you want, then you can go ahead and do it, no matter where it takes you. The question is, um, uh, she wants to know key moments in Robert's life um, that... The crises, the crises, the moments, yeah. moments, moments of change. A personal, um, his personal life as opposed to um, his artistic career. It's hard to say. Of course, the, the death of Andrea was a big event in the, in the life of Robert, but uh, I wouldn't say that it's... Uh, this kind of dramatic events has such an influence is the, the work it, itself, you know. It changed the, his mind at the, at the moment, but uh, I wouldn't say that uh, it's so important. And, uh, as far as I am concerned, I, I always consider uh, Robert as uh, an, an artist with an, a constant evolution you know, new, new system of expression, new, new influences on him, and of course the, the events of uh, his uh, family life or the love affairs he had. And, uh, it's obvious that uh, the, the fact he well, he divorced uh, from Mary and uh, it, it has an importance in the in the production, but it's impossible to say that that's just this moment. You know, it's uh, more subtle. Uh, I think. I think it's both moments and also people have have been very important in you know both supporting what he does and helping him through transitions and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been mm-hmm. important people who. You know, who, who have done that, and he plays off of that a lot. One uh, one situation that I think uh, was crucial was when he sold his his collection earlier to I forgot whom Harry Lunn or somebody or a group of lawyers, who then began exploiting it in a way that he didn't like, and he was really disillusioned, and that really turned him off on the whole commercialization and commodification of his work and turned him off from still photography. He'd been drifting from it, but this was like the last straw. I remember finally he did get to meet uh, Berenice Abbott in a hotel room when she came to New York and uh, was talking with her. And then Lund came in, a dealer who had bought and sold her stuff and was making mass production of hers and maybe his or dealing with his, and he walked out of the room. He couldn't stand being in the presence of the, of the dealer. And that was the one and only time he met Bernice, Bernice Abbott. Mm. Way in the back, yeah. Is he a friend of Walker Evans? Do they have any relationship? Yes, yes. We were talking about that before. Walker Evans liked his work, and he knew Walker Evans. And Walker Evans had volunteered to write the, uh, the preface to the Americans and visited the set of Pull My Daisy when we were making that. And Walker admired his work, and... Of course, I think Robert respected Evans as a sort of classic 
And he also he worked for Walker Evans as an assistant on a couple of jobs also. Really? Mm-hmm. He, he knew well the, the book American Photographs before he met Evans. And, and uh, Evans, for example, wrote a recommendation for the Guggenheim Fellowship. And, and they, they were quite close to each other. Um, you know, through the 60s and 70s also. He knew uh, Bernice Abbott's work and liked hers, the documentary work around New York, and then the portraits, I guess. But what she said was was interesting was the the, the difference between her generation, Walker Evans and uh, and uh, Roberts, was that he took the, uh, the little camera, the uh, like, and began making spontaneous pictures with that instead of the Art, more artful uh, setups that, that, that the earlier photographers had used with the big century universal view cameras. But it went to the small format and was able to get a mobility and a spontaneity which they hadn't thought of doing. And uh, though everybody was working with fast cameras, he was the one that had sort of the, the soul. And, the, and the, it's really a continuation of the same lineage in, in that aspect, I would say. The Americanist from William Carlos Williams and, and uh, Walker Evans and, and uh, John Murren and Marsden Hartley and uh, Bernice Abbott. I think he fits into that lineage of America, which, is, which Kerouac does too, an interest in America as, as newfound land, new perception, n- new uh, continent, a uh, new world, an uh, uh, unexpected future uh, from, uh, from Hart Crane and all those people interested in making an American poetry, an American prosody, an American painting. Uh, but then also he's got this, this uh, sort of glum Swiss European uh, sympathy and compassion, like a different, slightly different uh, naivete in a way. There's mention of the large format cameras and the like, but did he ever use like single lens reflex cameras? And I'd like to ask Mr. Ginsburg, did he ever come down to like the you know, so-called beat scene in uh, you know, the Grand Village area where, where you were involved and well, want to shoot you and your friends? Yeah, on and off. But mostly when we were hanging around making movies together. There was no other beat scene. Uh, except maybe going, uh, going to the Cedar Tavern. I don't know. I suppose he went occasionally. But he was hanging around with the same group. Dodie Mueller, the widow of John Mueller. Um... Mary Frank and her friends. Miles Forrest, a painter who hung around the, the uh, Cedar Bar. He knew all, he, he had, took pictures of Franz Klein around that time, or maybe earlier. He knew everybody on the, uh, not so much the beat scene, but on the 10th Street art scene, as you can see. And there were sort of interrelationships there. No, but he wasn't hanging around in poetry coffee shops, no. No, he had a wife, and he had a kid, and he had a loft, and none of us had that. (laughs) I don't think he ever used a single-lens reflex, at least not seriously. What is that? That the Roloflex, or what? A 35-millimeter single-lens where you look through the lens. It's a different world between the single-lens and the range-finding camera. must have known how because of his training in Switzerland. Well, they, no, we had that, that industrial photography. It came later. Yeah. The, the single lens. Yeah. Um, one question about, uh, for example, uh, your perception of the new photographs of the Frankfurt incorporates words. We're talking earlier about Julius Orlovsky and how a word is pronounced in the physical presence. Can 
tell. What do you think about shadow and shadow in terms of this word and image? And he says, I don't understand the question. Shadow and shadow? Well, photography being a shadow, and yeah. the word being materialized on this shadow, but also this shadow that is just pronounced. Yes, it's a shadow. word is a shadow of a thing. Yes. So how do you feel about the expression of the words on these images <laughs> in the recent photographs? Well, the first time I saw him scratching uh, words on the negative, I was horrified. <laughs> Oh, he's wrecking the negative, he's ruining it, he's making it irrevocable. Why doesn't he just do it on the print or something like that? But he, it was, there was some element in which he was desecrating the, uh, uh, the preciousness, the artistical preciousness of the, the, the negative and the photograph and the commodification of it by beginning to scratch words on it and express himself. Fear. It was, in a way, uh, I thought, but maybe that was just my square projection uh, motive on, on him. I thought it was a way of rejecting the uh, uh, commodity uniqueness of the negative that could be exploited commercially by uh, uh, not even neat writing, but you know, like the scratchy, scratchy stuff. I think that's true. I mean, it, it it's a sort of physical reaction to the process of photography itself. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful story about when, uh, when he made the, the panorama photograph, the, the very first one, I think, in Mabu, which is in the exhibition here, in which he wrote little words. And it's a series of photographs that are actually taped together um, that represent a panorama of the landscape. Um, he once told me that that was a reaction to... Uh, a friend of his, uh, Werner's Ridd, a Swiss designer who came to visit him in, in Mabu with a, a very sophisticated panorama camera. And he spent days apparently photographing the panorama with this camera. And then Robert eventually got fed up with it and said, no, no, this is how you do it. And went out with a Leica and just in two seconds made this panorama and taped it together. So o- often he's reacting to... You know, it's not only the commodification of photography, but actually the process of it himself, or itself. So he once advised me to get one of the uh, uh, a T2, um, what was it, what camera that has, ice lens? Uh, the, the, the point and shoot. Um, yes, you could T2. Yeah. Uh, for a point and shoot. He recommended it, actually. And then there was another one that you could look down into. You know, you could look into it. You know, it had not only through that way, but you had a little mirror thing that you could look into and shoot from the hip, like he likes to do. So he, he wasn't. What he said about it was that the cameras are getting more and more, uh, more and more idiot, and more and more stupid, and more and more simplified for people that didn't know anything about photography. But what, so what? Uh, that, that you couldn't get a really good, delicate camera where you could control it. Uh, on the mass market anymore, but the the, the, the cameras are, were becoming increasingly mechanized and simplified, so that it's not for photographers anymore; it's just for anybody. And he had an ambivalent attitude that was sort of interesting. He used it himself. The other day, I think he had a little camera at the opening here. Mm-hmm. He said, "This is the best camera there is, and it's one of the little idiot cameras that you point and shoot." It was a cheap one too. You know what it was? He always has Do you remember cameras. That? Yeah. What, what yeah. kind was it? Um, it was a camera that was given to him in Japan when he uh-huh. went there recently. Yeah. A little Konica. Konica point-and-shoot yeah. camera. But yeah, he, he was sort of ironically saying, this is the best camera you can get. <laughs> but these are always tools that are, are used 
toward a, you know it's a means of expression rather than some sort of technical thing that he's really interested in. Right. I think the tools are always. <clears throat> I mean, he said to me once, you know, how many like is he lost at parties in the fifties? You know, he would, <laughs> I don't know, get drunk or whatever and leave the camera. You know, I mean, so the camera is just you know an extra thing, really. It's not the prime concern. The camera that I think he used in the Americans was a C3, uh, like a C3, because I, I bought one in Poland in a consignment shop and brought it back and asked him to show me how to use it because you have to cut the film in a funny way to fit it in. And he said, oh, that's the same camera I used for the Americans. That was a, one that was really hard to load, too. It took a long time. Awkward. Yeah? I didn't hear the first question, but in, in answer to the second question, um, we, um, we did screen the film um, to um, an audience of uh, artists and, uh, and historians. Um, and we, uh, we did it that way because the film can only be shown if Frank is present, and it seemed to us uh, to be a really ideal opportunity to bring together a group of specialists um, to talk about to talk about the film. But what was your what was the first part of the question? Well, I just wanted to know. Uh, like I find his works very compelling, so I was wondering how everyone here on this panel why they find them compelling. But put inside critical considerations, because I've heard a lot about that, uh, read a lot about it uh, from art historians, critics about why Frank's works are very um, influential, important. But I'd like to know from a more personal point of view or emotional, because I find them also very intriguing from that point of view. It's a hard question. For, for me, it's because, um, and always has been, because it's very personal, and I was always really interested. That's what I found different. I was interested in the fact that the work was personal, and he was willing to put himself into it. And because of that, I believed it. On a lot of photography, I don't really believe it, or it don't, doesn't move me in some way. And I think that that's what really brought me into wanting to understand it better. I, th- I, found, I found that uh, I was getting interested in uh, knowing him, interested in what he looked at, what he thought was interesting to take a picture of, and then finally what he selected among his pictures, even fuzzy things. You know, uh, what was it, what, what was he interested in? I was interested in looking through his eyes, because I liked him. And there was some kind of stoical... Um, dogged persistence year after year accompanied with a lot of uh, uh, very delicate sympathetic compassionate feeling good heart uh, affection and I was wondering what would intrigue him and so therefore I began getting more and more interested in what what, what he selected that's why this show is so interesting since it seems to be his choices or at least his presentation and a lot of stuff that I'd never seen before I think also too, if, when you look at when you look at Frank's photographs, um, from early on through the Americans up to the most recent work, you can look at those images and you can you can put aside all the critical art historical 
um, language and and uh, theory, and you can you can just immediately react. You've been you've you've been in those emotional states. You've you've been that lonely. Um, you've you've felt those feelings that he's expressing. He gets at something that is that is fundamentally true, and he expresses it in a direct and honest way that you can immediately relate to. You know the picture, Make Love to Me? That's really horrifying when you look at it, that, and, and sort of very, the exposure both of June and of himself and their relationship. But it's like totally real and uh, totally grounded, and, uh, and it does break through into a territory that's so personal that very few people would reveal it. And, or, and, and that, so that has a kind of a candor that's... Uh, even though he's such a laconic private person, he's really totally exposed himself. Yeah? Yes, uh, you talked about the screening that he had to be present at mm-hmm. and, um, a group of artists and, artists. Mm-hmm. and you were present at. Could you talk more about that and what was the result of that? Um, that was last night, wasn't yeah. it? Was yeah. Um, we um, we screened the film and then afterwards um, we had um, a discussion um, with Frank um, about the film. Um, yeah, mm-hmm, on on the Rolling Stones. Yeah, um, it can only be shown if um, if Frank is um, is present. According How, to contract with the Stones. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's not his. That's not his doing. Um, you can get it now on video in New York. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Black market. I don't know, but I saw it in New York at the uh, Tower Video. The, the, <laughs> yes, I when I, I meant to ask Robert what happened, you know, but somewhere in the Rolling Stones or somebody. It's obviously it's not maybe not legal. I don't know. I don't it's know. A bad, it's a really bad copy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you saw it. You know how it got out. I think one of the editors had a print, and eventually that print yeah. was sort of yeah, from from Rolling Stones out. staff. Something yeah. like that. It just. I mean, everything gets out. Now it's out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's mainly they do not want it to be shown because of two or three shots in it. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's not nothing that. Uh, but of course, it's a good, I think it's very, very good <laughs> documentary film. My question was more about what the result of the discussion was. Uh, it's hard to summarize. Um, Anybody say anything interesting? I wasn't there. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. Um, did anyone? Well, uh, Robert. Um, uh, to me, what was um, what was um, the most special about it was um, was to have Robert there and um, to be in a situation that um, that he does find um, uncomfortable. That is. Um, you know he doesn't he doesn't like to hold press conferences he doesn't like to um to sit and answer um 
uh, a lot of questions, and his um, his generosity in doing so, um, uh, I thought was um, was 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 very extraordinary. He spoke about the process of of, of making of making that film, um, and uh, and answered several questions from the audience that were both technical about the editing of the film, the construction of the film, um, but then but then also um, you know the experience of of, of making it. I, I saw it originally when he screened it for Mick Jagger. He invited me. And uh, when it was all over, we went down in the elevator, and Jagger said, Robert, is a fucking good film, but if they showed it in America, we'll never get in again. <laughs> and Robert said, everybody who's shooting up is uh, an American citizen. So they didn't threaten any of the... Uh, no, it wasn't a question of the customs or uh, keeping anybody out because they were a foreigner or dope fiend or something. But that's the reason. Uh, there was political troubles uh, at that time. If you remember, John Lennon was being uh, driven, trying, they were trying to drive John Lennon out of the country, Strom Thurmond. That's probably one reason you didn't get to see it here, the shadow of uh, Jesse Helms hovering over the national capital. He did say it was much more difficult to watch now than when he had made it, and that the Stones were only your friend as long as you were with them, and that it was a very difficult six weeks yeah. of filming, and uh, he, he, he seemed to be expressing some pain that, about it now, that it's more painful for him to watch now than then. Then somebody, Alan, asked if there was a link between the beats, because they were implying that um, Neil Cassidy had, and, and the electric Kool-Aid acid test and all that jazz, that there, that there was a lot of uh, use of uh, mind-expanding uh, substances or whatever. But he said he didn't know Neil Cassidy, so he knew nothing about that. That was his answer. Actually, he met him, I think, in 65, uh, in San Francisco, when he, that trip when he came out. We showed the film with a, a film made by Danny Seymour that Robert Frank shot for Danny called Home is Where the Heart Is. And I also I wanted to mention uh, Danny Seymour's book, which I think is a wonderful book and very influential to many photographers in the 70s, called A Loud Song. Um, I think you know part of what, what's in the Stones film is really, it is about, about Robert and his friendship with this other young photographer and what happens during the, the tour. His work. I know. Uh, I'm thinking primarily about the Beirut uh, book that he just uh, that he just contributed to, and the way that he edited it, edited it, the images that are in that book is very different from the way that he um, uh, chose images that he was interested in seeing in, in this exhibition. And I'm I'm always interested in how he edits, how he makes his choices. 
I don't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he presents you with the work. It's funny with Robert because sometimes he, you know, fights himself. He'll take the film to a lab and they'll screw it up. Or when he filmed at Naropa for the Kerouac thing, he was ambivalent about going. He didn't really want to go. He brought the wrong equipment. You know, then he got there and he, you know, frantic phone calls, can you get me film, you know, whatever. People had a, you know, he's always sort of like fighting himself. He took some pictures, maybe the Birmingham ones. He, he used T-Max film. He took it to the lab. They developed it wrong, so the negatives were not unusable. But And then how he edits it, I don't know. I mean, I'm just presented with print this, this, and this. Cause, and he has an idea already or how he wants to combine a couple of pictures together. Um, I don't sit there and go over the contact sheets, and I, I couldn't begin to figure out how he does it. You know, that's the miracle. He just sort of, well, it's this, 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 and then you see something that he's put together, which you couldn't really figure out. I mean, I think part of that is that he stopped working for magazines where you sort of know which picture the picture editor wants. You know, if you work for Time magazine, you know that the person's face can't be in a shadow because they'll never run that picture. You know, so you can't figure him out that way because he's only working for himself. So it's just this intuitive kind of way he picks them out. How about when he combines images? Have you ever gone over to his place and you see images on the bulletin board and you come back a week later and there's something different? Mm, hard to really remember or, you know, they're just there and they just sort of evolve somehow. With, with some of the new work, I mean, since... 1970, when he began making Polaroid photographs, he works with notebooks and actually put, puts photographs in the notebooks and plays with them for a long time. They're kind of like a diary that you might keep, but a visual diary. And they get moved around and they get written on and they get played with and pinned up on boards um, And until something happens that will make it work. I mean, I've seen him work on pictures for, I don't know, four or five years, like uh, it's an image in the exhibition that's right at the end, um, which is a, a picture of three uh, it's three different shots of a an old motel out in the, I don't know where, New Mexico or something with just light on it. And then there's a, a little uh, piece of film in which he's scratched some words about the past is, is gone. Uh, and I saw him work on this picture for about three or four years until he really figured out how to make it work. And then he did, and it was really quite amazing. And So it's an evolving process. And also, I, I know in editing pictures for a book, he's often looking for something new or different or um, a new way of looking at his work that's different than what he's done in the past. And so he will often, um, again try new combinations or try something that you might think would never work and then something clicks and it does work. So he's not afraid at all to take a chance and do something new. When Philip and I were, um, to to sort of respond, Alan mentioned this, Philip and I selected the images um, in the the exhibition um, and actually it's sort of an amusing story. Um, We we would make our selection and we... we, um, uh, made a preliminary sequence that we sent up to Robert. That is sequence of image uh, images in the in the catalog, 
um, to get Robert's response um, to it because he was very concerned about the design of the catalog and the sequencing of the images in the catalog. Um, And when he um, sent it back, um, he had cut out probably all but about two or three of the images in the Americans. Um, he wanted no, no work from the Americans or very little work from the Americans in the exhibition because he was bored with it. He was tired with it. He wanted uh, to present something new. Um, and um, we told him that the purpose of this exhibition um, was to show the development of his career as a whole, to show the development of, of um, certain ideas throughout throughout his career, and that we couldn't do that if we excluded the Americans. Um, we wanted to put the Americans in context, um, but not to give it any more um, special place than any other aspect of his work. And he, and he, and he bought that, um, as, you can, um, as you can clearly, uh, clearly see. But he was very involved, as I said, in the, in the design and in the sequencing, and particularly in our presentation um, of, the, of the images, he was constantly urging um, all of us to to make it new, not just to do the the same thing again, um, but to make people look, even at these old images that they might know well, to make them look at them a fresh time or in a fresh fresh way. Um, And so that was something that he was pushing us to do throughout the course of our work on the show. One time I saw him trying to make up a book he had Xeroxes of all the uh, photos, and he was just shifting them around in a scrapbook. Mm-hmm. And um, so actually physically laying it out the way he wants to lay it out. And when I had a first show, he, at the Holly Solomon Galleries in 85, January, what he recommended was that I take old uh, drugstore prints and show those mixed up with 8x10s, mixed up with 11x14s. You know, old prints and new prints and uh, just whatever was interesting. Mm-hmm but not have it all the same size all lined up in a row. Make it, but just make it just more varied. Yeah. Exactly right. Um, can I just ask a question? Mm-hmm. Um, in the way you select the, photo, the photographs for the show, the thing for me that makes it so phenomenally successful is all the roots leading in, in and out of his work to other photographers mm-hmm. in the centuries. Just absolutely, <coughs> and that's what I learned biggest impact, and it was an emotional impact to see the incredible connections. Did that come up in conversation at all? You mean um, an, an attempt to show his links to Evans or to Brandt or to Kertes or, or others? Yeah. Um, no, no, never. No, <laughs> no, it didn't. Um, I mean, it was something Philip and I would talk a lot about, but, um, uh, but not, not with Robert. Um, that I remember. I think that the point of departure for the exhibition was, in a sense, to to make it like an autobiography, like it was his point of view. But I mean, it was our selection, and for us, for us, the point of departure was the book, The Lines of My Hand, which Robert first made in 1971, and it really was his own selection of his best work at that time that was sequenced in a way to kind of tell the story of his life, you know, through... It's like him looking back at his life as though the pictures are memories. Lines of my hand. Yeah. yeah. And, and then from that idea, then we really re, reworked the exhibition and selected ma- many new works that have never been seen, you know, used many 
that had been before. But I mean, that that idea that comes from that book was, for me, it was an inspiration to mm-hmm. to think about how to do that with an exhibition. Mm-hmm. It's not easy because it wasn't just a selection of the greatest hits of this artist. Perhaps um, if there's one more quick question. Yeah. <laughs> Robert um Robert made photographs for the um what's it Aspasi Aspasi um uh it's in it, he, this was an, an assignment um he uh was hired to to make photographs for a catalog um for their for their shirts excuse me <laughs> um fashion catalog fashion catalog he's an Italian, an Italian shirt maker um and uh I believe that he hired um Friends um, to to model the shirts, um, and uh, the catalog um, is reasonably hard to get a hold of. Um, we do have a copy um, in the office if you'd like to come look at it sometime. The photographs are extraordinary; they're really quite wonderful. Um, I think it was just an you know it was just an interesting odd assignment. Maybe he wanted to go to Italy. Um, <laughs> He, he did it on Bleecker Street. And just some, just something, true, you know, did, yeah. something to do. And, and he could hire, you know, some people off the street he used and just friends and a couple of guys from Mabu, I think, uh, right, that's right. modeled a few of the shirts. Yeah. I mean, it was just sort of, you know, something to do. I mean, it wasn't necessarily for money, you know, per se, but it was just something to do, keep busy. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you all um, for coming today um, and also to uh, extend all of our thanks to the speakers um, for coming. I think it's been a really great afternoon. Um, Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 